It's my intention today to come with plain but loving words to entreat you to seek after the Lord Jesus with all of your heart. We have lived in much shallowness and worldliness, saying on one side we are Christians, but in our private world, filling ourselves on the husks of the entertainment, filling ourselves, as Pastor David Wilkerson would say, on the straw and the apples of Sodom and Gomorrah. We must in our actual lives turn away from wickedness and seek after the Lord with all of our hearts. That's what today's broadcast will be about. Let's pray. Almighty God, as your people listen to this broadcast, would you bring such conviction and such earnest, hungry desire that we will seek after you with all of our hearts and lay aside everything that hinders, that stops us from having a pure and clean heart before you. Lord, come and move in your mercy. I pray in your holy name. Amen. You're listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley. I pastor the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. Pilgrim's Progress is named after that wonderful man of many years ago, John Bunyan, in the writing of the book Pilgrim's Progress. It was first published in 1678 and has been in continuous publication, selling only second to the Bible itself. For many, many years, pastors all over this nation would refer to Pilgrim's Progress in practically every sermon. It is the story, the allegorical story, of a man living in the city of destruction who begins to fall under deep conviction because in his private world he is reading the Word of God, and the Word of God quickens him in such a manner that he knows he is dwelling in the city of destruction, and he must flee that place to make the successful journey to the promised land, to the celestial city, to heaven itself. And so today we're going to talk again about another man who made that journey. He lived but a short time, having only ministered for four years before he died. But what a powerful impact he left behind. His name was Felix Neff. I'm sharing this story out of the paperback book written by E.F. and L. Harvey and E. Hay. They have given me permission kindly to read some of this material on the air. The book is entitled, They Knew Their God, Volume 1. We will put up on our website 
the publisher if you would like to acquire these seven volumes. It opens with how, how is it that 200 years after his death, Protestants of France unite to celebrate the work of an evangelist with neither degree nor diploma, and whose ministry in France lasted less than four years, how is it that one of the most isolated valleys in the high French Alps became the scene of a mighty work of God? One of the high places of French Protestantism and is today a center of annual gathering of many thousands of people. Felix Neff had much in common with David Brainerd, who labored among the American Indians under similar primitive conditions. Both were young. Both came to their field of labor under a cloud of misrepresentation. Both were most self-sacrificing both remained unmarried. I have to say that David Brainerd wanted to be married. He wanted to marry Jonathan Edwards' beautiful daughter. But he died before he could be married. Both died at an early age from overexertion under conditions of extreme hardship. Both experienced a work of reviving grace. Both were men of prayer. Now I share this story with you today on Pilgrim's Progress because I want you to begin to hunger after Jesus for a reviving work of grace in your heart. I want the old hardness, the compromise with the world, the love of the flesh, the world and the devil to be totally removed from your heart. I want to see a great work of God in revival in Washington, D.C. That is what I lay on my face and pray for constantly. This is what in the prayer closet I am weeping over. Felix Neff was born in Geneva, Switzerland on October 8, 1798. He was deprived of his father early in infancy. His mother, although a professed deist, never interfered with her son's early love for the church. Although her means were limited because of widowhood, she gave him everything possible for his mental development. Tokens of motherly affection were withheld from him save in his sleep as she wanted to inculcate many qualities in him. This was not a mother who turned him into a mama's boy. He was a man's man. And I just note for you the great sorrow of my heart is that my mother and my father were not united together in their desire to serve Jesus. Oh, now both were Christians, and both were self-sacrificing. But my mother was in opposition to my father's 
sternness. Dad wanted me and urged me, as soon as I could begin to read, to read the scriptures, to take time to pray. My mother, on the other hand, thought I should have a much better rounded education. And so from a very early age, when I first began to read, she would take me on a weekly excursion to the town's library. And there she would choose for me books of adventure, books of history, and she urged me to be widely read. And so my heart naturally went toward the novels, the historical novels, toward history, toward many good books. But these crowded out my ability and my interest in reading the King James Version of the Scriptures. And I've had to deal with that division in my heart all the years of my life until finally I've come to a place of being utterly given over to the Lord and now like my father, I urge you and others to lay aside the novels and the entertainment of this world and to focus your entire attention on Jesus because we are not here for very long. We are here but a short time and then we are gone and we face the judgment. You and I do not have time to sit and waste watching a baseball game or a football game on the television. There is not time. If you think there is, you have not adequately understood the crisis for eternity that we face. Mrs. Neff said, I followed the world and my union with a man of brilliant parts and skeptical opinions soon ended in making me like himself a deist an habitual and deliberate neglecter of public worship. Not so with my child. At a very early age he delighted to attend the sacred assemblies, and not only did he never fail doing so, but was remarkable for the seriousness of his deportment. Happily, he never asked me why I did not go with him to the house of God. Felix was self-taught in botany, history, and geography. From his pastor he gained some knowledge in Latin. He was gifted with a most retentive memory, truthful to a fault, but was strong-willed and haughty. Because of the local village schoolmaster lacking a proper education, his mother became the tutor to her son. Before the lad was thirteen, they moved. Felix had by this time exhausted the library of which their home could boast, as well as many other books his mother could acquire for him. An effort to locate him in a good school failed in its endeavor, as employment was most difficult to secure. The teenage lad occupied his leisure hours studying insect life and trees and wrote a treatise on them 
and on their care. He also continued his mathematics and his Latin studies. He read the philosophers from the age of eight until he was sixteen. But their infidel arguments did not seem to affect him or turn his life. God was preparing his instrument. His mother writes, I always had left him to follow his own inclinations. At last, I saw not the hand which controlled us both, leading me to send him to this good pastor, who soon appreciated his character and anxiously wished that he would be of service to him. His endeavors were, however, fruitless, and we became nearly destitute of financial resources. He advised my son to enter the army. Here, by his seriousness and application to work, Felix was rapidly advanced in the rank of sergeant, much to the chagrin of those who had been training much longer. His captain once said to him, You leave nothing for the soldiers to do. You have no idea of commanding. It is the best and surest way of commanding, replied the youth. From an early age he had fixed ideas of the evils of the world. Do you think there is no amusement at a theater? queried a friend. Oh, on the contrary, I think there is much too much, was the reply. A growing conviction that the spring of all of his actions were selfish caused him in deep distress to pray. Oh, my God, whatsoever thou art, make me to know thy truth. Vouchsafe to manifest thyself to me. He began a diligent study of the Bible as it seemed to him that no other book could unlock the mysteries regarding the unregenerate state of the human heart. To him as yet, however, God was a stern judge not a merciful father. Now, I want to share with you that from my perspective, the modern church has turned and believes now that God is not a stern judge. They believe that God is a merciful father, but they are utterly unaware of the mysteries regarding the un unregenerate state of the human heart, that is, of the sinfulness of the human heart. And then the lie comes that you can still walk in your sin and be saved because God is this merciful Santa Claus in the sky. That God's grace covers your sin. And so there is no conviction of sin today because we believe the information we have covers the lack of private righteousness. This is a sin of the most serious kind and it blocks it blocks you from entering into true salvation and if you believe this lie and you have no interest in understanding this sinful nature and having it removed you will surely be lost in the knowledge you have and you will find yourself in the last day cast into the fires of hell I'm sharing with you stories of men 
who understood the seriousness as John Bunyan did with Christian, the seriousness of an unsaved heart, of a heart given to sin and to wickedness. You must understand this and not turn aside to some cheap and easy believism that somehow is supposed to release you from the penalty of sin by the blood of Jesus while leaving you in your sinful condition. God wants to give to you, my brother, my sister, a pure heart. A heart that is not of sin, but is of righteousness. It is all a gift of God. But if you do not receive this gift because you do not think you need it, because you think the blood of Jesus covers you like a blanket, and you can continue walking in your wicked heart, you are utterly deceived. And you will be lost. Do you know the difference between truth and a belief? Do you know the difference between a truth and a belief? A belief is absolute. No. Truth is absolute. A belief can change. So you can believe that you're saved and not be saved if you have not matched your life with the truth. Jesus Christ Himself is the truth. And so if you believe today that you're saved because Jesus' blood covers you and you're free to continue walking in wickedness, your belief will not save you. It will condemn you to hell. We must understand the difference between truth and belief. And we must come to the Scriptures for the truth. And I'm going to unveil for you a truth that is so astonishing. When I saw it this past week, it utterly astonished me. It, it was such good news to my heart that I, I was set to singing and rejoicing. Now let me come back. Let me come back to this wonderful man, Felix Neff, as God is now shaping him as a tool. It was through a book, Honey Flowing from the Rock, loaned to him by his pastor. Felix at last received spiritual understanding. It was written by an Englishman, Thomas. Wilcock. This passage brought balm to the young man's soul. This is what it said. If you knew Jesus Christ, you would not for all the world wish to do a single good work without Him. If you already know Him, you know that He is the rock of salvation infinitely above any righteousness of our own. This rock will follow you everywhere. From this rock flows the honey of grace, which alone can satisfy you. Would you go to Jesus? Renounce all idea of your own goodness, taking with you nothing but your misery and your sin? 
Would you know all the horrors of sin? Do not be content to examine its extent in yourself. Instead, go to Jesus on the cross. Behold in His suffering the malignity of sin and tremble. Let the Spirit of God guide you in the study of the Bible. It is a mine wherein the most precious treasure is hid, even the knowledge of Christ Jesus. And written on the margin of the book were the words, Felix Neff has found peace here on these two pages. He later wrote of this experience when after a thousand useless vows and a thousand ineffective efforts, I learned at last that in me dwells no good thing. I was happy indeed to come across a book which depicted with exact truth the miserable state of my heart and showed me at the same time the only effectuous remedy. I received with joy the good news that we should go to Christ with all our stains, all our unbelief, and all of our impenitence. Now the problem in today's culture, perhaps in your life, is that you believe you can come to Jesus and He will simply cover over all of that wickedness of heart. And you accept some good news, supposedly, that Jesus will save you in the midst of your sin and let you remain in it. Never. Never. Grace and sin cannot live in the same place. Grace does not bring permissiveness. Grace does not bring an allowance for sin. Grace casts all sin out of the soul of a sinner by the power of the blood of Jesus and by the washing of the Holy Spirit. Although this energetic convert was far from satisfied with the spiritual condition of the National Church of Switzerland, he was not a separatist and sought by holding Bible studies and prayer meetings within the established church to deepen its spiritual life. During the day, Felix would work in the vineyards, and at evening he would speak to peasants gathered to hear him. Speaking of his labors in Switzerland, he writes, I spoke of evangelical simplicity in opposition to barren theology. The whole of this canon seems preparing for a great revival, at least if one may judge by the agitation of Satan. I've already been holding 13 prayer meetings in seven different villages, and they have been attended by half the population of the place. In the intervals, I visit all the pious Christians in their own homes and those who are still yet inquiring he saw clearly that the world would tolerate its followers professing merely a belief in the Bible, but would severely punish those who sought to govern their lives by its precepts. Therefore he spoke everywhere of the necessity 
of separation from the world. These unpopular tenets, which the young exhorter held and taught, first surprised and then enraged the ministers, the pastors, who would not allow any religious teaching not under their direct supervision. In a conversation with the local deacon, he defended his position. Felix Neff said, I remarked that I could not see how prayer meetings carried on without any regular system, without a liturgy, or without the celebration of sacraments could be in any way detrimental to the interests or tranquility of the established minister, adding that either the established minister receives his authority from man or from God. If he receives it from man, we have no occasion to respect it as divine. If he receives it from God, let him prove that he does so by respecting all that God does to promote the advancement of his heavenly kingdom and not place himself at a point of criticism of God. Now, ill health forced Felix Neff to leave Jura without delay, and the opposition to his prayer meetings caused him to record in his diary on January 10, 1821, I have just received permission to remain till the 5th of April. Many are very angry, but heretofore government tolerates me, and the Lord appears to have opened many hearts. A province brought him to the notice of a pastor, blank, B-L-A-N-C, pastor of Mems in France. An interview was arranged, and Neff observed, I informed him that I never pursued any regular course of study and that I should, could certainly never be ordained at Geneva. He did not seem to think the worse of me for this and invited me to visit him at Mems. He even would like me to pass some months there in the absence of his assistant. At 24 years of age, Felix Neff left his native Switzerland for France where the few Protestants were poorly provided with clergy. He labored for six months in an, as an assistant to the pastor, holding his prayer meetings as he had done in Jura, Switzerland. Of these, Felix Neff writes, I am more and more convinced that these prayer meetings and Bible studies are very effectuous means of promoting practical piety. They encourage mutual confidence, humility, simplicity, and brotherly love. It is an air of pride and presumption to suppose that we have nothing to do with the spiritual affairs of our brothers. On the contrary, we are all members of the same body and therefore members of one another. And if one of the members suffer, all of the members suffer with it. I know by experience that the dead and lifeless state of which we all complain is occasioned by our own fault. We either do not pray, or we are not persevering in our prayer. Our heart naturally is at a distance from God. It is not a single step that will bring us near to Him. 
and neither will a few minutes of cold prayer suffice to support our souls. I want to just agree with him, please. If you do not understand this, you will never find your heart satisfied in Jesus. Instead, religion will be something of an add-on to an already full life, and you will find your satisfaction in the enjoyment in the entertainment of this world. You will be a church man or a church woman. You will focus on the traditions of the church. You will focus on Lent and Easter and all the other events in the church calendar. You will do the prayers. You will go through the rituals. But your heart will be cold toward Jesus because you have no inner life. Everything is external. Now in 1822, the young evangelist moved to Mims, and he assisted this Pastor Blank, B-L-A-N-C, in instructing those who were coming to know Jesus. They numbered in number 70 people. Once a week, the young assistant visited them, only one-fifth of whom resided at Mims, the remainder being scattered in 20 different villages in almost impassable country. He was very disappointed to discover, as he puts it, not one single ripe ear of corn in so large a harvest field, and he bemoaned the worldly spirit which predominated. I've preached on this radio year after year, and yet I find almost not one single ripe ear of corn. I don't find people responding. I don't find them coming to the prayer chapel earnestly seeking after Jesus. Oh yes, a small remnant do. But what about you? What about all the others? Are you content to continue being a part of the worldly denominational church or the entertaining independent church? Are you content to enjoy the entertainment of the world, even the entertainment of the world that's been brought into the church? Is there no hunger in your heart? Is there no crying out in your spirit for more of Jesus? Are you content to be simply a church man or a church woman? Are you content to just be a worldly person with spray-painted Jesus on the outside? Or is there a deep hunger in your heart that you could have that heart made clean and pure by the blood of Jesus? I find very little spiritual life in Washington, D.C. I find much religion. I find much organization. I find much shouting and spitting. But I find almost no true spiritual life in this city. I cannot help thinking that the churches of this day are far too content with their worldliness. I weep before God when I go into the churches, when I visit churches, I find nothing but worldly conversation. I don't find a hunger for Jesus. 
before the service, I listen to what people are talking about. After the service, I watch. Are there people gathering with tears flowing down their face? Are there people gathering to pray, to seek after Jesus? No, everything is about, let's go to dinner. Everything is about, what about that football game? What about that baseball game? What about March Madness? I find almost no spiritual life in Washington, D.C. Oh, the churches are prospering. They're full and overflowing. And the cheap, trite words of the false gospel are spoken that say you can live in your sin and still be saved, that Jesus loves you unconditionally. Can I tell you something? If Jesus loved you unconditionally, there would be no such thing as hell. How could he send someone to hell whom he loved unconditionally? Do you think the Lord loves the devil unconditionally? Do you think he loves the devil's children unconditionally? Oh, he loves them. He loves the whole world. John 3.16 But he doesn't love them in a way that allows them to continue to walk in wickedness. And in the end, he will cast every wicked person into the fires of hell. So we find Felix Neff is being cast out. He's being lied about. People do not want him to preach. And finally he says, I'm going to go to a place. I'm going to go to a place where I will be the only pastor where I will not have to face the wrath of other pastors. I'm going to go to the Alps. I'm going to go to the high mountain peaks of the Alps. And at the age of 26, he began the work for which he is most remembered. He went to find the scattered flock of God. He traveled in some of the most dangerous and desperate places. One of his journeys described in his journal will give us some conception of the difficulties of travel. The day was stormy. The villagers entreated the young minister not to cross the mountain pass in such horrible weather. But Neff, feeling he must preach at the village that was highest in the Alps, hired a guide and armed with a large stick, approached the mountain. He writes, It requires the pen of a poet to describe the awful and magnificent scenery. We were knee-deep in snow. A storm of hail driven by sharp wind accompanied the repeated claps of thunder and the rolling of the avalanches falling from the highest rocks. The lightning flashed above and below, and the drifts of snow threatened to overwhelm us. Happily, all this storm was at our backs and there was no precipice near us. We therefore were no real danger. At last we reached we reached the mountain where pass where we found the snow was still three feet deep, and the wind howling 
We arrived at the descent, and I then dismissed my guide and continued to descend. Till up to my knees in snow, a fog arose, and I could just see the points of the rocks guided with the rays of the sun. I then sang the verses of a hymn, and quickening my pace, I discovered the tracks of some sheep driven into the valley by the snow, and I arrived by daylight at the village. And they were not just a little surprised to see me. In a letter to a friend, he described the historical and moral setting of the people for whom he now was to work. This village, the highest in the valley, is celebrated for the stout resistance which its inhabitants for more than sixty years made against the encroachment of the wicked church of Rome. They are the literal, unadulterated descendants of these brave people who never bowed their knees to Baal. The remains of forts and walls which they built to prevent the enemy from surprising them are still to be seen, and the almost inaccessible nature of the country was also a great means of their preservation. The population of this village is entirely Protestant, as well as that of other villages of the valley. The aspect of this country at once dreadful and sublime, which afforded a shelter to truth while the rest of the world lay in absolute darkness. The recollection of these ancient and faithful martyrs, whose blood even now stains the rocks, the deep caverns, whither they retired to read the scriptures and to worship the Father of light in spirit and in truth, all tried to elevate the soul, exciting feelings and emotions impossible to describe. But these thoughts soon gave place to grief. When the mind's eye rests on the present condition of the descendants of these ancient witnesses of the crucified Christ, they are utterly degenerate in every sense of the word, and their state remains reminds the Christian that sin and death are all that the sons of Adam can rightly bequeath to their descendants. And alas, that inheritance can be left behind. They still have a great respect for the Scriptures. Nevertheless, the work of an evangelist in the high Alps greatly resembles that of a missionary among savages. The almost equal degree of uncivilization which prevails among them both being a great obstacle in missionary labors. Among the valleys under my charge, that of these people is most backward. Agriculture, agriculture from the various earliest infancy. Many houses are without chimneys, many without windows. All the family during the seven winter months stow themselves in the stables which is only cleaned once a year. Their dress and food are equally coarse and unwholesome. Their bread which is made once a year consists of the coarsest rye. If any of them are ill, they have no doctor and no one to administer either medicine or sick food. The invalid must think himself happy if he can obtain but a drought of water. The women are harshly treated as among people still in a barbarous state. 
They seldom sit down, but generally kneel or crouch down. They never sit at the table or eat with the men who give them a piece of bread over their shoulders without looking around. A miserable pittance, which they receive with low reverence, kissing the hand of the giver. The inhabitants of these melancholy villages were so wild when I first came among them that at the sight of a stranger, even a peasant, they would run away into their huts. The young people, especially the girls, were unapproachable. With all this, this people participated in the general corruption so far as poverty would permit, gambling, dancing, swearing, quarreling, are to be met here as elsewhere. There is scarcely a house that is proof against the snowdrifts and pieces of falling rock. From the period of my arrival, I conceived a particular affection for this valley and felt an ardent desire to become, as it were, the Oberlin to the poor people. Unfortunately, I was not able to spend more than a week with them in the course of a month. Felix Neff, in his short period, four years of service, helped to build schools and churches for worship. He also taught improved methods of potato culture and introduced irrigation, assisting in the implementation. He founded schools and secured teachers, but it was for the spiritual reviving of this peace, of this people, which caused him to be such honor. A genuine movement of the Spirit was noticed when he visited it seemed as though the whole valley had assembled, and a solemnity and an awe rested upon the entire congregation. Passing on to other villages, he witnessed still further proof of a moving of the Spirit. Oh, my brother, my sister, I am praying for the moving of the Spirit in your heart. I am praying that you will become so convicted about the lack of a pure heart, a lack of consecration, a lack of the love of God in your heart for the lost. I'm praying for a moving of the Spirit in Washington. I don't care to go to the big celebrations and the big meetings and the big prayer meetings. They're devoid and empty of the presence of the Spirit of God because there is a lack of righteousness, a lack of purity, a lack of casting off the world and the things of the world. He writes, all the people seem to give themselves up to reading, meditation, and prayer. The young people especially seemed animated by a Holy Spirit. A heavenly flame appeared to have communicated itself from one to another, I had scarcely thirty hours rest during the entire week. Struck with astonishment at the ardent suddenness of this awakening, I could scarcely believe my senses. Even the rocks, the cascades, and the ice seem inspired with life offered up to my, to my eye a less dismal and gloomy prospect from before. This wild country had become dear, and delightful to me now that it has become the habitation of Christian brothers and sisters. He writes, 
It was not till the spring of 1828 that I first began to perceive my stomach weakening. Weakening by the coarse food and the irregularity of my meals and perhaps in some degree too by the uncleanness of the cookery utensils used in this country. My constant alpine journeys were both painful and dangerous on account of the severity of the winter weather. Constant internal pains and indigestion obliged me to observe an abstinence but ill-suited to the fragile and hard cold to which I was exposed. The fatigue, a sprained knee brought on by walking across the fragments of the immense avalanche soon arrested my course about the end of March. I soon perceived that it was absolutely necessary for me to seek medical assistance, assistance which with all their good will these poor mountaineers could not give me. So in 1827, at only 29 years of age, the sick man left his beloved people for Geneva. After the first few months of rest, he rallied so much that people did not believe him to be ill, but a relapse set in about spring. It altered him so much the old friend scarcely knew him. The strangers took his mother for his wife, although she was 67. The interruption of my activity, he wrote, is a trial I will I well deserve. I have often feared in the midst of my greatest vigor that I placed too much confidence in my strength and pleased myself too much in the power of action which nothing seemed capable of interrupting or even wearying, and thus I ran the risk of one day being deprived of it for the sake of my spiritual good. He longed to be back in his high alps with his people, in spirit I often revisit your valleys and long to be able to enter, to endure the cold and fatigue, to sleep in a stable on a bed of straw in order to proclaim the word of God to you, he wrote. My words have often wearied you and my plainness of speech has often offended you and many of you saw me depart with joy. But were I still among you, I should not change my language. Truth is unchangeable. I should still entreat you in the name of Jesus to be reconciled to God. No murmur was heard to pass his lips during those long, long months of illness. During the last weeks of his life, he endured agony and could not even bear the, the receiving of visitors. Those nursing him heard him whisper, Victory! Victory, victory in Jesus Christ. And he passed from the scene of his short labors. Writing about this incredible man, Pastor Blank, B-L-A-N-C, wrote, I have often told you why you find it so difficult to endure the hard contempt and the wickedness of the world. It is because you cannot bring yourself to believe that thus it must be. This is what Felix Neff wrote to his pastor just before he died. 
that the continual struggle is indispensable and inseparable from the gospel. You must not reckon on the esteem of men, on worldly ease or comfort. I saw nothing but the rage and fury of the wolf against the sheep of God's and the good shepherd, and I now think nothing of the little contradictions I meet with. All I can do is to point to the giver of every good and perfect gift, to him who, when he came to open the kingdom of heaven to us, was far from having his earthly path strewn with roses. Instead, he met with no honor and no respect. Perfect peace in this world is death to the new man. Now in the last minutes of this broadcast, I want to say something very clearly to you. Spiritual life becomes feeble and weak and you are left with nothing but religion. Evil arises from the neglect of prayer, the reading of Scripture, and meditation by too much time in front of the television and too much time enjoying the entertainment of the world. You are, many of you, content to know these things without practicing them. Many of you say, I know what you're saying, Pastor. I know the theology, but do you practice what I'm speaking of? You speak of the grace of God, but do you seek the true grace of God, not the cheap, greasy grace of covering over sin? Do you seek the true grace that will cast every sin from your heart? Do you cultivate a close communion with Jesus? Are you a Christian in your private life? Do you seek Jesus in your closet? It is vain to expect to find God at the church if He does not walk with you to the church. The source of life is not in ourselves. It is in God. It is in proportion as we neglect to apply to this source by prayer and reading and meditation. And we shall become, and many of you are, absolutely dry, unfruitful. Jesus said, Abide in me. It is not given to any creature to have life in itself. It is only in proportion as Christ dwells in us and we in Him that we have any real life in us at all. Now I'm going to share with you a a most amazing truth, but I will not do it today. I will do it Sunday at the worship service and the next week I'll come to it again. God wants to dwell with you. Do not cast Him away with your love of the world.
God. My heart is broken and sorrowful at the low level of Christian life in Washington, D.C. We are a people shallow and foolish, given to prosperity and success and entertainment, but having rejected you in the inner place of private life. Sentimental, self-assured, filled with pride. Lord, break it. Break it. Break it, Jesus. I pray in your holy name. Amen. Go to our webpage, please, nationalprayerchapel.com. You can listen to this broadcast again. It's on the internet. It's at the YouTube. It's on a podcast. Will be soon. Share it with a friend. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley. I pastor the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. If your heart is hungry for heart purity, come to the prayer chapel. God bless you. I love you. I'll talk to you soon. Oh